we continue our study of James chapter 3. And I've been assigned specifically verses 7 through 12. But before we jump into that, uh, if you would be so kind as to let me review of the previous verses, because they really kind of set the foundation for what we're going to be looking at tonight. So I'll try to be as, as brief as possible. The concept of taming the tongue is found here in this chapter, in James chapter 3, where God declares through the Apostle James that no one can tame the tongue. The lengthy discussion about the tongue in this chapter is both convicting and illuminating. Among the things this chapter reveals about the tongue is it's a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. It is a fire and a world of evil that defiles the whole person. It is set on fire by hell, and it is an unrestrainable evil and full of deadly poison. It is no wonder that God declares that taming the tongue is impossible. Now, I thought about this, about the tongue, and, you know, what am I going to talk about? And I thought about when I was a little boy, when my mom would take me to the doctor. You know, the first thing that he would do is tell me to stick out my tongue. You know, you remember, ah. And... And I think they do that because it's often an index to the health of the rest of the body. You know, but I always wondered where he got those big popsicle sticks. I thought they were big popsicle sticks. I was like, Mom, where can we get those popsicles? You know, of course, you know. But in the same way, that which is produced by the tongue, our words, also furnishes an index to the health of the spiritual body, the heart. In Matthew 12:34 Jesus warned that for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Every day you and I speak thousands of words. Some are carefully planned and selected. Others are spoken impulsively. Some are spoken quietly, others spoken with more volume. Some of our words are spoken with the desire to help and encourage. Some with the motivation to hurt, belittle, and retaliate. However, most of our words are spoken with little, if any, thought about how they will affect others. James is going to speak to us about the importance of every word we speak. For each word will make an impact both on God who records, evaluates, and will judge every spoken word, and on those who hear our words. Just a couple verses later in Matthew 12, 36 and 37, Jesus warns, But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Those are pretty sobering statements. 
James tells us that this problem is both universal and continual. Back in verse 2, he says, For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, also able to bridle the whole body. You know, everyone stumbles. Everyone in this room has stumbled. And let's face it, stumbling is is embarrassing. You, You know what I'm talking about? You know, you're walking along, you know, and your shoe catches something on the sidewalk, right? You know, some even uneven part, and, and you stumble. And, you know, and your first thought almost subconsciously is, you know, I, I wonder who saw that. You know, you're looking around like, you know. And then, of course, you, you know, you put a little skip in your step and you try to pretend that you did it on purpose, right? Or you go back and you kick that thing and you're like, oh, man, you know. So you all know what I'm talking about. But that's a blow to your pride, right? But there are different blows. Some are moral or character stumbles. And the consequences are much worse. One area in which we're most likely to stumble is in the area of speech. Because it's our tongues that reveal the conditions of our hearts. So the tongue then becomes a genuine sort of litmus test for the heart. Back in chapter 1, in verse 26, James says, If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. In other words, unless your supposed salvation manifests itself in the way you speak, Your salvation is nothing but self-deception. So we would say then, as James said in chapter 2, that faith produces works, and one of the works that faith produces is speech to the honor of God. So in review, James makes three observations about the tongue. First, the tongue is small but powerful, verses 3 through 5. The tongue is is very small in proportion to the rest of the body, but it can do great things. James uses three images to make his point. First, in verse 3, James says, Indeed, we put bits in the horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. James wants you to think of this powerful horse, this big stallion, and how he can turn to his master's will by the use of a bit six inches long. Secondly, in verse 4, James says, Look also at ships, although they are so large and driven by fierce winds and waves, yet they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Think of a mighty ship. Think of the Queen Mary. Think of some of these cruise ships. Eight of the rudder can change the direction it travels, that small little part in the back. The point again is that even though the size of the vessel can be quite large, like the horse and the ship, it can still be steered by something proportionately very small. So too our words can have a powerful impact on the lives of others. 
Does anybody here remember uh, who Karen Carpenter is? Some of you older guys, people will. Girls, I'm sorry. My apologies. But for those that you don't know, they were a, a very successful duo, brother and sister group that um, wrote and sang kind of what, like soft rock, I guess, would it be? Or like soft pop, yeah. Yeah, well, they, they, were, they, they were very, very successful. I thought she was kind of cute myself. Um, anyway, uh, Karen Carpenter died unexpectedly of heart failure at age 32. And it was brought on by years of self-abuse from the eating disorder anorexia nervosa. Now, later after she died, CBS released a program called The Karen Carpenter Story. The USA Today, in commenting on this program, asked the question, but what brought on Karen's fatal obsession with weight control? The answer given was that it seems a reviewer many years before had once referred to Karen as Richard's chubby sister. Now, it's hard to fathom that a single negative comment could change the course of someone's life, but it certainly did. James uses one more word picture in the second part of verse 5. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. James says it only takes one tiny spark to ignite an entire forest. The similarities between a fire and the tongue are, are hard to miss. James says that the tongue also has that kind of power. Even so, the tongue is a little member, he says, and boasts great things. Just a few words, just a spark, can cause years of heartache. The tongue will strut and brag. It will say, I can ruin a reputation. I can rupture a friendship. I can spoil the most tender of moments. I can embarrass, humiliate, and shame. I can cut, I can curse, and I can destroy. This is what we're capable of doing. Secondly, the tongue is small but dangerous. Verses 6 through 8. First in verse 6, James compares the tongue to fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. Oof. You know, folks, when we study these books, it's important for us to spend time in them. I hope you guys read these things you know, over and over again and become familiar with each block of verses that we teach on every week. Because as I've been reading James, particularly my part, I can't help but come to the conclusion that the overriding purpose of the epistle of James is to help us as believers get beyond religious posing. And what I mean by that is, you know, Going to church with a clean face and a smile, you know, dressed nicely, spouting Christian lingo, promising to pray for everybody and everything to real spirituality, and then we're out the door until next Sunday morning to start the whole process over again. This whole section focuses on taming the tongue. Do you understand how difficult that is? 
If you think you can come to church once a week and tame your tongue with a one-hour Bible study, you are sadly mistaken. It takes discipline. It takes hard work. It takes complete reliance on the Holy Spirit. 24 hours a day for the rest of your life. The central message in the previous verses here has been that real spirituality requires control of the tongue. He's already told us it's a fire, a world of iniquity. It not only defiles the whole body, but sends wickedness to wherever it is heard in the world beyond. It is the chief tool the heart uses to make trouble. The chief weapon that people employ to destroy their families and friendships. The chief source of problems in the church. Even the chief cause of evil twists and turns in the course of history. So now we come to our verses for tonight. And let me read those. Starting in verse 7. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring can yield both salt water and fresh. So James goes right on here and continues his lament for the tongue when used as an instrument for sin. He calls us to notice how hard it is to tame the tongue. He says it's harder to manage than a monstrous wild animal. Look at verse 7. He points out that no kind of beast has escaped being subjugated by man. In his list of animals, he uses the same categories that we find in the account of creation. He mentions beasts, birds, serpents, and sea creatures. In Genesis 1.26, we read that when God created man, he bestowed upon him dominion over fish, which is an example of a sea creature, birds and cattle, examples of land-dwelling beasts, and creeping things, including serpents. So therefore, in affirming that man has tamed all these creatures, James wants us to see that man's power over nature has indeed attained the level of dominion which God intended from the beginning. Now, James doesn't mean that man has made pets out of all of these animals, okay? Rather, he means that no kind of animal can prevail against man if man hunts it down, whether to kill it or capture it. Are you with me? Okay. He's using the illustration that somehow we've managed to tame all the animals. Now, I thought, what is in this verse? You know, there's got to be something here. And I think really there's kind of a hidden lesson. You know, I started thinking, how do we manage to tame wild animals? 
you know, we take an animal when it's young and we train it not to do the things that would come natural to it, right? When you get a dog, a puppy, if you don't train it, he's going to pee on your carpet and you're going to be mad, but you have no one to blame but yourself if you don't train that dog, all right? Well, I thought to myself, well, maybe the tongue is the same way. Maybe somehow when it's young, it can be trained not to do what comes natural. You know, when I was a young boy, maybe seven or eight, uh, me and my best friend were outside, and we were close to the house, and we were using some words that we had heard. You know, we knew they were not good words, but we were little boys and we thought it was funny. We'd each say a word and we'd laugh, you know, like dumb little kids. You know, we felt that they were really cool to say, you know. Well, little did I know, my older brother heard everything we were saying. And even though my mother was deaf, he took opportunity to rat me out. He took a lot of joy in that. So off I went to the bathroom for a good washing out of the mouth with soap. I don't know if parents do that today or not. I've never done it to my kids. I, I really never had the uh, reason to do it, actually, but I will never forget that experience. It was some nasty bar soap. It was all in my teeth. It, it was terrible. But I think it was my re first real experience with conviction. Now, my intention here is not to make you think that since then I've always been able to control my tongue because I have not. Um, but that experience made me think twice before I use that kind of language again. But, unfortunately, it's clear from Scripture that no man can tame the tongue. This little tongue, this little hardly significant bit of flesh say, compared with a lion, has been tamed by no man, verse 8 says. This statement is absolute. Now, I want you to notice that James doesn't say that the tongue is untamable. He says that no one can tame it. It is humanly untamable. Only God can tame it. Now, James states this because he wants us to get a very clear view of the horrible monster that we have to do battle with. When the Holy Spirit controls your heart on a daily basis, over time, the fruit of the Spirit will appear. You know, what you spend time with is what you become filled with. When you spend time in God's Word, praying, fellowshipping, you become filled, and the Holy Spirit, the, the fruit of the Spirit, will make itself known. This includes patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, which are all manifestations of love, which is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And those all relate to the control of the tongue. If you're going to tame the little monster, you have to walk daily in the Spirit, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Ultimately, the, the tongue is the tool of an evil heart. Look at the last part of verse 8. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. What an awful description. 
restless evil and deadly poison. You know, being restless means that it never sleeps. You must always be on guard against it. Restless means that something has a difficult time waiting. So the tongue is not only evil, but it can't wait to be evil. You know, in the flesh, man just looks for opportunity to use communication as a weapon. And let's be honest here. Do we not find ourselves in situations where we can't wait to share or hear the latest gossip or find out, hey, what's going on? And not only can the tongue not wait, but when it lets go, it's a killer. The word that James uses is deadly. Poison will make you sick, but deadly poison will kill you. You must always be on guard against it. You should handle it as cautiously as you would handle a vial of anthrax. He's already told us that it's evil and unruly, but now he adds that it's like the fangs of a poisonous stake. When we read this, we should allow James's words here as elsewhere in the book to paint a picture in our minds. He gives us one striking image after another so that we will not only hear the truth as conveyed by words, but we'll also see vivid pictures illustrating the truth. The picture in this verse is a man lunging like a serpent and biting his enemy, using his tongue to inject that deadly venom. James is teaching that although hate and anger seldom lead to actual murder, they often lead to deadly violence of another kind, to the use of words that assassinate reputation or demolish self-respect or trash another person's desire to be loved rather than hated. These are powerful words, but they really bring to light the awesome power of our communication. And I use the word communication because too often in our contemporary high-tech society, we hide behind texts and emails and claim to have not said anything. Lives are being affected by the quiet yet poisonous use of social sites and texting. You know, how ironic is it that man is able to harness the power of a raging river, you know, to prevent flooding, you know, to build a dam or, you know, to, to harness that power to produce hydroelectric power. Man has learned to harness the power of the atom for destructive and productive purposes. He has been able to subdue every kind of creature from taking a little parrot and sticking him on your shoulder and having a conversation with him to a guy riding on the back of a killer whale to please an audience. And yet with all this success in bringing things under his control, he is powerless to control his own tongue. What James is saying is if the tongue could be controlled, the whole body could be controlled. But the fact of the matter is the tongue, like a raging forest fire, is totally out of control and uncontrollable. And its great power is the power to destroy and corrupt. 
We can control all the creatures of nature, but we can't control ourselves. The one thing that distinguishes man from beast, the tongue, the ability to communicate, the speech that God gave us, is the one thing that man cannot control. Well, things are pretty bad, but they're not bad enough yet. James goes on in verse 9 through 12. He gives us even more bad news. Look at verse 9. He says, With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. The same man who employs the tongue to destroy also uses it to bless God. How convenient is that? So besides being cruel, he is false and deceptive as well. When it suits him to seem religious or spiritual, he will intone words that make him look like a saint. But as soon as anyone stands in his way or makes him feel the pinch of opposition or criticism, look out. He will cast off that pious pretense and stand forward in his true character as a vindictive sinner. And he will let you have it. He will take his tongue out of that velvet sheath where it could only speak blessing and use it as a sword to slash and strike his enemy with injurious words. Words of cursing rather than blessing. Such a man, in essence, is a hypocrite. All the evidence needed to convict him of hypocrisy is furnished by his own tongue. He becomes his own best and worst commentary. But, you know, sad to say, we are so accustomed to bless and curse with the same tongue that we don't see the glaring self-contradiction. If we bless God, how can we curse a man? Man is God's creature made in God's image. Folks, there is consequently so much value Inherent in one soul that when we look upon a wicked man or someone we don't like or a man we think is wicked, we should desire only his salvation, preserving his soul from eternal destruction. However wicked a man may be, he's not beyond hope until he dies. When we curse a man, we become, as it were, cheerleaders for the destruction of his soul. Think about that. Now, if we use the tongue to curse a fellow believer, our offense is even greater. The person we're targeting is not only made in God's image, but he is God's child. So if we feel that he's wronged us, we should have no desire to retaliate with harmful words. Far from it. Our only desire should be that he will repent of his sin and regain the path of God's blessing. To curse him is a terrible sin. You know why? Because it puts us in league as 1 Peter 5.8 says, with the roaring lion who is seeking to devour him. And who is that? You don't want to be in league with Satan. So James 
now makes the application in verse 10. He says, out of the mouth, out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. So now he, he addresses his, his, his readers as my brethren. It's kind of an endearing term. Um, maybe to soften the rebuke that's coming. I don't know, but uh, in other words, he says that among brethren in Christ, there should be no such hypocrisy, employing the tongue for both blessing and cursing. In case you didn't know, Jesus really cares about our speech and the things that we say. God knows something about the powerful communication tool that we call language. It's clear from the way John begins his gospel. In the beginning was the word. In Genesis 1, God speaks the creation into being. The final words of the book of Revelation are a warning about adding to or subtracting from the words of that prophetic book. Yet there are people, and I've met them, even Christians, who feel that words are really no big deal. I want to share with you a few stories about that, and then you can decide for yourselves whether words are no big deal or not. There is a small suburban town that's a suburb of Cleveland, Ohio, right on Lake Erie, that boasts a population of about 50,000 people named Mentor, Ohio. In this pleasant beachfront community, it was recently voted one of the 100 best places to live by CNN and Money Magazine. In Mentor, there is also a high school, probably very much like the one you or I attended. In your schools, I'm sure you had guys like Eric Mohat. Eric was loud, obnoxious, and flamboyant. He sang soprano in the choir and liked to goof around in class. As a gag, he began carrying around a stuffed animal to class that got his own seat, and the girls in class, who he was mostly friends with, wrote stories and essays about the stuffed animal as the gag began to catch on. Eric's favorite color shirts were pink as well, and because of his loud and flamboyant behavior and dress, he attracted the attention of his classmates who began teasing and name-calling, which later turned into more malicious talk. Oftentimes, he was called homo and queer. Bullies once knocked a pile of books out of his hands on the stairs and said, pick up your books, homo. However, Eric was raised to be respectful and never let it get to him or retaliate. His peers all wrongly assumed he was gay, which he was not. And eventually, their words took a toll. Eric Mohat shot himself on March 29th. 2007, two weeks before a choir trip to Hawaii. Or maybe in your school, you know a girl like Meredith Rezak. Meredith was bright, outgoing, and well-liked. Known for being athletic, she was a star on the volleyball team and known by everyone in the school. When she joined the Gay-Straight Alliance at her school and told friends and family that she thought she might be gay, the teasing, name-calling, and gossiping began. Eric Mohat, who I mentioned just earlier, was a dear friend of hers. Following his example, she shot herself in the head three weeks after Eric's death. 
A year after Meredith's death, the older of her two brothers, 22-year-old Justin, also shot and killed himself. His death certificate mentioned chronic depressive reaction. In March of 2010, her only other sibling, Matthew, died of a drug overdose at age 21 due to the depression caused by his sister's death. The sting of words, folks, traveling all the way into the depths of other family members. Or maybe in your school you knew a girl like Jennifer Earing who would take Pepto-Bismol to calm her stomach and plead with her mother to let her stay home because the harsh words that were lobbed at her every day cut so deep. She was an accomplished equestrian who had a learning disability. She was developmentally delayed and had a hearing problem. So she received tutoring during the school day. Because of her disability and slowness, she was teased relentlessly by other classmates. By the end of her sophomore year, she overdosed on antidepressant pills. And lastly, maybe you know a girl like Slajana Vidovich, whose family had moved to Ohio from Bosnia to escape the war that had ravaged their country in the 1990s. Slajana was pretty, vivacious, and charming, and loved to dance. She would turn on the stereo and drag her father out of his chair and dance him in circles around the living room. At school, life was very different. She was ridiculed for her thick accent. Classmates tossed insults like slutty Jana. Classmates call, would call in the, in the dead of night and would tell her to go back to Croatia, that she'd be dead in the morning, that they'd find her body after school. Her sister found her body when she had tied one end of a rope around her neck and the other around a bedpost before jumping out her bedroom window. During her funeral, her family watched as the girls who had tormented Slajana for months walked up to the casket and laughed. Four deaths, one school, all because of joking. Joking and harsh words. You know, you can, you can blame it on the faculty, but we all know, we all know the root of the problem. People's biting tongues, cruel words. You know, when we're under pressure, you know, we find ourselves in trials that test our trust in the goodness and presence of God. You know, we're tempted to use our tongue to vent our doubt and frustration, you know, through unkind comments, you know, perhaps a rash, quickly spoken, angry word, gossip, complaining, coldness, manipulation, you fill in the blank. And we try to justify all this by telling ourselves that our words are no big deal and that we're under strain and we need this outlet. Sometimes we try to hide behind the idea that I was just kidding. It seems we want to indulge 
our tongues, but not to carry responsibility for what we say. So we try to convince ourselves that they were just words. I didn't mean anything, so that makes it okay. These words are very sobering, aren't they? And we know the truth of them. I think we've all been deeply hurt or affected by a thoughtless word that's been tossed our way. And we've seen the long-term results of some of our own comments towards others. When we look around, we see a tremendous outpouring of thoughtless, unhelpful, critical, and undermining words. We've had to toughen ourselves up against the deluge, and maybe this is partly why we tell ourselves it's no big deal. We're tough, so we can take it. But James says it has deep, scarring effects, and it's easily passed on, spread like poison or fire. Folks, our words with our, our relationship with God is going to be reflected in our words, and our words are either going to betray our relationship with God or going to affirm our relationship with God. I have one more story. This one, not quite so sad, <laughs> that illustrates just how powerful our words can be. A group of frogs were traveling through the woods one day, and two of them fell into a deep pit. All of the other frogs gathered around the pit to see what had become of their friends. When they saw how deep the pit was, they told the unfortunate frogs that they could never get out. It's just too deep. But the two frogs ignored the comments and tried to jump out of the pit. The other frogs kept jumping and yelling and telling them to stop, but they were just as good as dead. Finally, after dozens of attempts to jump out of the pit, one of the frogs took heed to what the other frogs were saying and simply gave up. He fell down and he died. The other frog, though, continued to jump just as hard as he could. Once again, the crowd of frogs yelled at him to stop the pain and suffering and just die. But seeing his friends jumping and yelling, the last frog jumped even harder and finally made it out. The other frogs asked him, Why did you continue jumping? Didn't you hear us? The frog explained to them that he was nearly deaf. He thought they were encouraging him the entire time. <laughs> this story teaches us that the tongue, the spoken word, has the power of life and death. Proverbs 18.21 tells us that. An encouraging word to someone who is down can lift him up and help him make it through the day. Proverbs 16.24 says, Pleasant words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the bones. Now, on the other hand, a destructive word can cause him to give up and quit. Job 19.2 says, How long will you torment my soul and break me in pieces with words? Anyone can speak words that's going to rob another of the will to continue in difficult times. That's easy. But special is the individual who will take the time to encourage another. Let me tell you guys, if you have a friend that has the gift of encouragement, you keep that friend. Because they are few and far between. 
honestly, I know two people in my life the whole time I've been a Christian that I believe have the gift of encouragement. One of them no longer lives in this state. And they are special folks. They have a way about them that is just pure agape love. You know, because how we choose to deal with one another is is up to us. We can be harsh. We can be loving. But we need to remember the tongue and its awesome power. You know, as you know, my wife, Amy, and I are available after service, you know, to counsel those who accept Christ. And on occasion, we get someone who either wants to argue about silly things, which you know, I'm convinced is really just a distraction, you know, from the enemy to prevent us from helping people who have genuine concerns. Or we get people who just really want to ask a specific question. And one particular young man asked me once if I thought it was okay for a Christian to cuss. You know, this question is harder to answer than it initially seems. On the surface, you know, one could easily say that passages of Scripture like James 1.26, Ephesians 5.4 indicate that it's not okay for Christians to use profanity. You could easily stop with these two verses and say, no, Christians should not cuss. But truly, that's really just scratching the topsoil of the topic. There are further, deeper considerations when you look at this subject, you know, what is profanity? Who determines if something is profane? And what of Christian liberty? You know, this young man asked, you know, if, if the group I hang out with uses profanity and doesn't think that there's anything wrong with it, is it really profane? He and his buddies regularly cuss among themselves. They do not view it as profane. So obviously in this context, using all kinds of cuss words certainly must be okay. So this kind of sparked my intrigue. And I did a little digging around and I found one writer on the use of profanity. And he said this, quote, the fact is the evidence that cussing is a sin just isn't there. Or at least if it is, I haven't been able to find it. So I say this with as little sarcasm as I can muster. Will someone please direct me to the list of forbidden cuss words in the Bible? Now, to be sure, Scripture doesn't give us a list of words which it considers profane. So what is it that defines filthiness or foolish talk or or coarse joking? Is it the culture that we're living in? Well, no matter how commonplace profanity is, it's always pretty clear what words are profane and what words aren't, right? We all know this. We, all, we, we intuitively understand, even if we don't have the academic training in linguistics or sociology to voice our understanding, We know instinctively what is considered profane by society and our culture. 
So, if this young man says, if my immediate culture or my subculture, whatever, accepts certain words and they're used, then they must be fine. Well, I can tell you, I can only say this. If you would not use those words when speaking to your mother or father in church, in a job interview, or how about some with someone you, you just met, then they are clearly inappropriate for use. You know, it's been shared with us as a body by Xavier that some congregations, particularly emergent and, you know, these progressive churches, use and accept the use of profanity. And that they consider this as part of their witness, you know, a way to reach those who may be put off by religious people. In fact, it seems to be a more and more prevalent course in many churches today to become worldlier in order to reach the masses. This is hogwash. Christians are not chameleons. We don't change colors to blend in to their immediate surroundings. We are to be lights in the world and noticed, but set apart through our word and through our actions. Paul tells us to be all things to all men, but without compromising the gospel. In addition, we need to always be aware of how our speech is going to be understood by those around us. Because as it is, the message of the gospel is going to offend many, for sure. But our use of language should not offend them at all. So as to the specific issue of cussing, you know, there are, of course... Worse evils than cussing. Still, two of the Ten Commandments, the third and the ninth, deal with the sanctity of oral communication. James here scolds his readers for their foul language. Out of the mouth, out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, urges believers to think on whatever is pure, whatever is lovely. Whatever is admirable, excellent, or praiseworthy. Now, I'm sure, I'm not sure expletives related to human waste or what Paul had in mind as pure and lovely. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus admonished his listeners not to say raka to each other in Matthew 5.22. Some scholars are convinced that raka was a cuss word. Paul tells the Ephesians that obscenities and coarse joking are improper for God's holy people in Ephesians 5.4. The fact that the movie industry warns audiences about language it considers inappropriate for children and young people speaks volumes about a need for selectiveness in vocabulary. People, there is great power in words. The casual use of damn trivializes the awfulness of divine judgment. Using hell as a cuss word diminishes the appalling thought of an eternity apart from God. 
sprinkling conversations with expletives related to sexual intimacy demeans the sacredness of the divinely ordained union of a man and a woman within the bounds of marriage. Still, there are those that will proclaim, well, what of my Christian liberty? You know, it is, it is amazing the immaturity, the, the immature view of liberty among Christians today. You know, the idea of Christian liberty is becoming one of liberty is freedom from something rather than freedom to something. The truth is, we were freed in Christ, in, we were not freed in Christ, rather, in order that we might do as we please. We were freed in Christ so that we could finally be able to become like Christ. Legalism basically asserts that the Bible says you cannot do this or that, and you must do this and that in order to be righteous or demonstrate your righteousness. Misconstrued liberty or reverse legalism says we are saved by grace, not of works, so anything I do which is not specifically denounced by Scripture is okay. People, grace and conscience should not be used as covers with which we justify any sort of questionable behavior we don't want to give up. When it comes to the issue of swearing, we have to be guided by the Word of God, by the Holy Spirit, and by our conscience. But if you come to me and you claim that the Holy Spirit is leading you in your freedom to use such language, don't be surprised when your fellow Christians respond by asking, what in the blankety-blank are you talking about? They will say, well, in the proper context, my Christian liberty affords me the position of, joy of enjoying these things. I would say that they have begun to take Scripture so lightly that suddenly it's okay to go right back to those things that we once did, said, or thought. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5 says, and, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Verse 2, in which you previously walked according to this worldly age. What does it mean to have once walked according to this worldly age? You know, I think the context of this verse spells it out pretty clear, especially when you keep reading. There's a few more verses if that's enough, but I'll spare you for the sake of time. But, you know, have, have we really strayed so far from holy living that it's now okay for Christians to go right back to their former ways. 
and use the grace of God as, as their security blanket. You know, to abuse our liberty to say and do whatever we feel like saying and doing, no matter who it offends. I don't buy that. Someone once said, Christian liberty is not the freedom to do whatever we wish. It's the power to live to please God. So does profane speech please God? Hmm, let's see. I don't think so. All right? I don't think that it... I think it's quite clear. Cussing, swearing, vulgar speech, it does not please God in any way. It's the communication of the world, which we're told again and again to have no part of. And yet we desire to be culturally relevant, progressive. We have to connect with the culture around us. We have to adopt this speech. Then everything will be fine. For the cause of the gospel. It's baloney. You know, I guess, do you call this modern Christianity? I don't know. They may teach that this method is just fine, but Scripture has a much higher standard. Lastly, it will be brief. Verses 11 and 12. He goes on in verses 11 and 12 and asks the rhetorical questions, pointing out that what often happens among Christians is contrary to all of nature. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring can yield both salt water and fresh. You know, such a mixture of uses is is so bizarre and inexcusable that even the world of nature witnesses against it. You know, a mere fountain can be depended on to always provide the same kind of water. You go down to that fountain in the, in the hallway and you turn that spigot, you're going to get clean water. It, it's not going to gush sweet water for a little while and then bitter water an hour later. It's just not going to happen. When James repeats the same thought in the next verse, he explains the intended contrast. He's referring to fresh water and salt water. You know, for any given fountain, you know, underground spring, you know, either its underground sources have been invaded, you know, by brackish water from the sea or they have not. Salty outflow from contaminated springs represents nasty speech from a hateful heart. This imagery is appropriate because salt water is really a disappointing find when looking for pure water. You know, that's why somebody who's uh, stranded in the ocean, even though they're so thirsty, there's an ocean of water, they won't drink that water because it'll shut their kidneys down and they'll die. So just as drinking too much salt water can sicken the body, so listening to evil words can damage the soul. There's a reason that we don't use the same pipes for our water and our sewer. Where, is Daryl here? No. It would be disgusting, right? 
Well, what does our praise on Sunday morning sound like to our holy God from the same mouth that gossiped and poisoned and complained all week? James makes it very clear, people, that we cannot bless God with the same mouth that spews deadly poison. A fig tree does not produce olives and neither does a gossip produce praise. The world of nature gives many other examples of things consistent in what they produce. Any natural tree always bears fruit to type. An olive tree is going to bear olives. A fig tree is going to bear figs. In the works of God, there's always harmony between the various parts. The fruit always maintains the identity of the whole plant. So in our speech... Our words should always express our identity as children of God. From our mouths should come only blessing, no cursing at all. His point is the same as that of Jesus in Matthew twelve thirty four. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus again in Matthew fifteen eighteen. But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile a man. The mouth is simply the opening that vents whatever is in the heart. If there's raw sewage in the heart, there'll be raw sewage gushing from the mouth. That's why Proverbs 4.23 exhorts us, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. You know, think about how terribly embarrassing it would be if there were a direct open line between your thoughts and your mouth so that you blurted out loud whatever you were thinking. You know, instead of your polite, hi, I'm pleased to meet you, you'd say, hi, I couldn't care less about meeting you. (laughs) Or after listening to somebody drone on about something, instead of, Yo, that's very interesting. You'd say, wow, you sure are boring. How can I get away from you? <laughs> now, now, I'm not suggesting that we should abandon politeness okay, and become brutally blunt. I'm only pointing out that even if you control your tongue, you still have a heart problem. If you want to tame the terrible little monster, the place to start is with your heart working daily at taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, 2 Corinthians 10.5, walking daily under the control of the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5.18, renewing your mind by memorizing Scripture, Romans 12, 1 and 2, Psalm 119.11, memorizing James 119 and 20, this you know, my beloved brethren, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, And slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Folks, the human heart can be a snake pit. Actually, it's the manufacturing place of all uncleanness and all sin. The showcase of the heart is the tongue. My my simple words here in this Bible study cannot exaggerate the corruption of the heart and the filth that comes out of a filthy heart comes through the lips. 
But when I've said all this, what I've said, the strongest thing is surely said in Proverbs 18.21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. It would be nice if conversion resulted in a total makeover of their mouth, but it's just not the case. We do become new creatures in Christ, but we also carry around with us that old nature, which wars against the spirit. And the tongue is one of the major battlegrounds in the war. We got to wage that war daily. You know, most Christians would shrink back from sins like homosexuality or molesting children or murder as being satanically depraved. Yet we tolerate gossip, slander, deceit, half-truths, sarcastic put-downs, and other sins of the tongue as if they were no big deal. James says that all such sins have their origin in the pit of hell. They defile the one committing them. They destroy others. Words are important. We use words to communicate with our friends and family. We use words to conduct business. Sam uses words to put praise songs together here. We use words to discipline our children. Pretty soon, politicians will use words to convince you that they're the best candidate for the job. Words, they're a huge part of every aspect of our lives. You know, the average person says about 16,000 words a day. That's a lot of words. And unfortunately, anything that there's a lot of begins to be undervalued. The value of something changes based on how much of it there is. You know, when I came in the room tonight, I went over there and I looked at that donut box. There were 19 donuts in that box. And I saw people, they were talking for a while, and a few people went over there and got their donut, and then a few more. And then, you know, by the time we're starting, there's probably only a few donuts left. And then they seem precious. You'll probably rush over there and see if there's one after the service. Because we hear and use so many words every day, they don't mean much to us. But we should see them as precious. Maybe we think only the really important things we say are significant. Or maybe we think only what we write down or only when we have ground-breaking conversations, or only when we say what we really think, that our words matter. I think our verses tonight communicate something very different. The Lordship of Christ has no boundaries, people. There is not an area of your life that you can rope off and tell Jesus, not here. That means Jesus is Lord over our sentences. You know, I came under severe conviction while putting this study together to the point where I had to stop and break down and go repent. And I hope this message encourages you. I hope it convicts you. I hope that it brings fruit in your life. Because foul language and coarse joking and all that stuff The only proper context for using such language is from the lips of a man at enmity with God. Walking according to the lust of the flesh. 
according to the ways of the world, defending his pride. It has no place coming from the mouth of a man or woman professing to love Christ. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the real truth that comes from your word, Lord. Father, I pray for every person here that you help us to take this and to go forward, Lord, and to be better people. Help us to love one another, Lord. Teach us how to love each other. We love you, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.